want to encourage you with some verses from Lamentations 3, verses 22 to 24. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I will hope in him. And you know, those verses, you know, if you just read them on their own, they might sound a little like a Hallmark card. They might sound a little too good to be true. You know, but the cool thing, the book of Lamentations, Jeremiah wrote those verses, and if you read through the first couple chapters of Lamentations, he is surveying the wreckage and the ruin of the city of Jerusalem. He had nothing in his external circumstances to look around at and to be hopeful for. Nothing. And yet, in the midst of that suffering and in the ruin and the destruction of the city, he said, the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. And so we're here this morning to remind ourselves of that truth, that God's mercy is new every day, no matter what's been going on, no matter what's been happening in the past week, his mercies are new today. Invite you to pray with me if you would. Father in heaven, uh, what, a, what a beautiful reminder in song of the God that we serve. And I pray that we would be reminded often uh, that you do move mountains, that you do make giants fall, that you have used in the past and still do use songs of praise. Uh, to break prison walls, to shake them. And I pray that, Father, we would, if necessary, we would speak to our fears, we'd preach to our doubts the truth of your word for your glory and for the advancement of your kingdom. I pray that you'd speak to our hearts through your word today because your word is quick and powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword. It pierces even to the dividing asunder of the soul and spirits. It's a, joint, it's a discerner, and joints and marrow, it's a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. So search us, we pray, O God, and know us. And see if there's any wicked way in us and lead us in the way of understanding. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, we're in the middle of ball season. Uh, for those who care about baseball, softball, we're kind of in the middle of that thing. And every coach knows if you're uh, coaching baseball that you, you need to focus on the fundamentals if you're going to be successful. If you're going to win games, you have to, you have to drill down on the, on the fundamentals. And as we come in our study of Matthew, <clears throat> we're coming to Jesus, and he's descending the Mount of Transfiguration. So he has descended the Mount of Transfiguration, and he's beginning the six-month march towards Jerusalem. Okay, so we're in the, the last season, this, this new season of ministry for Jesus. Beginning in chapter 7, verse 14, and following, this, this season begins. And success on the mountaintop, as we find out in Matthew chapter 7, verse, verse 14, is, is followed by struggle in the valley. Okay, So there was success on the mountaintop uh, in chapter 7, verses 1 through 13. And now we're down in the valley here. He's, he's coming down with the disciples, and it's the new season. And in this new season, he's wanting to remind his disciples 
of the fundamentals, get them back to, to some of the basic fundamentals of what they need to have in order to be successful. And so Jesus, in this passage, his exorcism of a demon, his explanation to the disciples as to why they weren't able to get rid of this demon, and then his expression of his upcoming passion are the things that, that showcase his, his divine majesty. And, and stress the priority of faith. The priority of faith for our salvation. The priority of faith for our service. The priority of faith in every life situation. Until he returns. And so I invite you to open your Bibles or turn, uh, somehow get there on your device, whatever you have. It's a phone, a pad or something. If you don't have a Bible, there should be one in a seat, underneath a seat in front of you somewhere in the row. If not, uh, I don't know, raise your hand and uh, I'll, I'll go get one. I'll get one for you. There's some down here in the front. Uh, but we're in Matthew chapter 17. And in Matthew chapter 17, beginning with verse 14, I'm going to read the text, 14 through 23. Jesus took two steps to stress the priority of faith in him in light of his power and his plan. This is all about Jesus and all about our trust in him. Okay? Matthew chapter 17, beginning with verse 14. And when they came down, that's Jesus, Peter, James, and John, okay, those four. When they came down to the multitude, a man came up to him, falling on his knees before him and saying, Lord, have mercy on my son, for he's a lunatic. Now, if you're reading the ESV, it says an epileptic, okay. I'll get to that in a minute, all right. And, and is very ill. For he often falls into the fire and often into the water. And I brought him to your disciples and they could not cure him. And Jesus answered and said, Oh, unbelieving and perverted generation, how long shall I be with you? How, how long shall I put up with you? Bring him to me. And Jesus rebuked him and the demon came out of him and the boy was cured at once. And then the disciples came to Jesus privately and they said, Why could we not cast it out? And he said to them, because of the littleness of your faith, for truly I say to you, if you have faith as a mustard seed, you shall say to this mountain, move here, to, from move from here to there, and it shall move, and nothing shall be impossible to you. But this kind does not go out except by prayer and fasting, and that's in brackets because it's not in all of the manuscripts, okay? Cool. Get to that maybe. And while they were gathering, verse 22, together in Galilee, Jesus said to them, the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him, and he will be raised on the third day, and they were deeply grieved. Here we have Jesus. He is coming down from the mountain with the disciples, and he engages in two steps, or takes two steps, to reveal his full character and also to instill in them the necessity of faith, the priority of faith is one of the most basic things if we're going to live in light of his absence, which he's preparing his disciples for his departure. Not just then, but now. He's, he's not here with us physically. And so we see the first step is that, that our Lord challenges unbelief. And the challenge comes in two forms. First of all, he challenged, uh, Jesus Challenges the disappointment. His disappointment over unbelief is seen, okay? And this is verses 14 through 17. The, the four of them come down from the mountain. They meet this desperate guy in verses 14 and 15. 
And the man came humbly before Jesus, begging for mercy for his son, because the text says that his son, uh, he says, have mercy. It's a request for pity, for compassion. And we'll see why he wants this compassion. It's a request for this, and it's it's directed appropriately at the Lord of mercy. Give mercy. He's the one who can give mercy because he is the Lord. And only he can extend mercy. When I thought about this, you know, this mercy, this pity, this compassion, and I, I didn't check with her, but I'm, I'm going to uh, mention, you know, Katie works a lot with, our, with the Chin community, and it's a, a mission of compassion because there's not a lot of, uh, not a lot of kudos. She doesn't get paid for it, but there's, there's compassion. I thought about Bob as he works with Freedom for Youth. There's compassion, there's empathy, there's mercy extended. The, the people don't necessarily deserve the, the, the extension of love and care but they they get it out of mercy and so this is what this man is asking and he says uh, the the NASB says he's a lunatic (laughs) well it comes from the the word word is lunar okay from which we get the moon and the idea is the old parable or old thought that if you looked at the moon it'd drive you nuts so this was this idea that he was a lunatic but the ESV says Epileptic, and the reason it says epileptic is because of this. Because the word describes various physical maladies that that result in convulsive behavior, including epilepsy. So epilepsy is one of the things that it would it would cause. And there were this was a serious condition, a serious physical condition. But as we see, it has a spiritual cause. It's not just a physical ailment. It was, but it has a spiritual cause to it. I want you to look at Matthew chapter, on the screen here, Matthew chapter 9, or Mark chapter 9, verses 17 through 18. And one person from the crowd answered him, teacher. Now notice the difference. This is the parallel passage in Mark. In Matthew he says, Lord, but here he says, teacher, from the, uh, a man from the crowd. I brought you my son because he has a spirit that makes him unable to speak. Now this is part of the malady. This is part of the illness. This is part of his lunacy. He can't speak. Um, And whenever it seizes him, it slams him into the ground and he foams at the mouth and he grinds his teeth and he becomes stiff. And I told your disciples so that they would cast it out, but they could not do it. Now, listen to what Mark or Luke has to say. Luke in Luke chapter 9, verses 38 and 39. And the man from the crowd shouted, saying, Teacher, I beg you to look at my son because he is my only son. And the spirit seizes him and he suddenly screams and it throws him into a convulsion with foaming at the mouth and only with difficulty does it leave him, mauling him as it leaves. This is his only son. From childhood, this has been his problem. And any parent would do whatever it took to, to find help for, for their child in this situation. And Matthew says the boy is very ill and he often falls into the fire and often into the water. So here we have this sinister force within him that causes him danger on a regular basis that could result in his drowning or in his severe burning. We have, uh, we have some friends and uh, they have a child, and the child is subject to uh, convulsions at any time. And if someone's not there, the, the child could die. I, I, I can't imagine 
trying to live with that, knowing that your child in the next room could die if you do not hear or come to their rescue or to their aid. And so here the desperate man comes to Jesus because his disciples can't do anything. And the Father brought him to the nine disciples. Remember, Jesus and the three are up on the mountain, and then the nine are down there. So he brought them to the nine, and, and they, couldn't, they couldn't do anything. In verse 16, it says they couldn't do anything. The, the, the word there is dunamis. They didn't have any dynamite. I mean, it's dunamis from which we get dynamite. They didn't have any power. So they can't blow the thing up uh, because they don't have any power. And so he brought him to Jesus. Interestingly enough, the nine disciples had been given authority by Jesus to do just that. Look at Matthew chapter 10, verses 6 through 8. But rather, go to the lost sheep of the house of Israel, and as you go, preach, saying, The kingdom of heaven has come near. Heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse those with leprosy, and cast out demons. Whoops. They had been given the power, but they weren't exercising the power. <clears throat> and the disciples' previous failure led the man to Jesus. And it prompted <clears throat> an unexpected reaction from Jesus. Uh, look at verse 17. And Jesus answered and said, O unbelieving and perverted generation. Who's he referring to? His contemporaries, all those people that are there. <laughs> you unbelieving and perverted generation, which specifically, primarily, he's focused in on the self-absorbed scribes and Pharisees, those people who said that he was casting out demons because he was the ruler of the demon. But he's also focused on the self-serving multitudes who come to Jesus only so Jesus will, you know, like a genie. Give me my three wishes, and then I'll be done. But he's also not excluding this father or the disciples, at least indirectly. I, I like what Sean O'Donnell said in his commentary. He says, the disciples are to be corrected here, but the crowd is condemned. And Jesus' frustration is twofold. Okay? He calls them an unbelieving generation. Well, what were they unbelieving? They did not believe that Jesus was the Christ, that he was the Messiah. It wasn't that they didn't have any faith at all, but they didn't have faith that Jesus was the Messiah, that he was the Son of God, the Savior of the world, that they would acknowledge him as such. No, they didn't have that faith. Because, but they did have faith. I mean, they came to him, right? They brought their, their sick and their poor and, and the hurting and the diseased and the demon-possessed, and he would heal them and cast out because they had some faith that he could do that, but they didn't have faith that he was the Messiah. So in that sense, they were, they were unbelieving, okay? And in spite of the overwhelming evidence that he was the Messiah. And the Father becomes like a prime example of this unbelieving generation, I want you to look, if you will, at Mark chapter 9. It's in the, it should be on the screen, verse, beginning with verse 21. And he asked the father, how long has this been happening to him? And he said, from childhood. And it has often thrown him both into the fire and into the water to kill him. But if you can, but if you can. He's talking to Jesus, the son of God. 
He says, well, if you can, you know, I mean, if, if, you know, if you can. And I'm thinking, it reveals his doubts about Jesus' ability, about Jesus' supremacy, about Jesus' divinity. If you can. So then there's, the, so the unbelieving, but then he calls them perverted. You're a, you're a perverted generation. And he has in mind both, and the word perverted means twisted. You twist, the, you twist what is what's normal and you twist it into being abnormal. So it's twisted in their morals, in their conduct. It's just, they were decadent, okay? They were immoral. And twisted in their concept of Jesus. Particularly, particularly that they were twisted in that they were calloused. As I mentioned before, the scribes and Pharisees, the Pharisees, what do they say of Jesus? He casts out demons because he's the ruler of the demons. Not because he's God, but because he's a ruler. Of the, that's a perversion. That's a twisted, messed up thing. That the, Predominantly, these religious leaders who would, who would discredit Jesus, would discount Jesus, would demean Jesus, would ultimately destroy Jesus on the cross six months from now. You're perverted. Generation. And... Jesus' disdain for the people's deplorable condition is emphasized when he says, how long will I be with you? See, to me, it's Jesus is revealing the fullness of his humanity in this expression and also the fullness of his deity. His fullness of his humanity is he's, he's revealing his human frustration and disappointment. And in his divinity, he's revealing he's God because God, if you look at Deuteronomy chapter 32... You can write this down or you can record it or forget it, whatever you want to do. But in Deuteronomy chapter 32, verses 5 and 20, and in Numbers chapter 14, verses 11 and 26 and 27, you have God the Father referring to the people of Israel as a crooked and perverse generation. Jesus is using God words because he's God. And he's saying God stuff. Because he's God. But he's also doing it as a human being, filling fully his humanity. How long shall I be with you? His, he's communicating his profound disappointment in, his frustration with, and his desire to be free from these people. I mean, can you imagine God in the flesh? It's like, ooh, he's got to put up with these people. You know? You like mosquitoes? You know, they're, they're coming out now. You, let, you, you get a mosquito in a pup tent, and it's pretty annoying. And so it's like, Jesus is like a, a mosquito. He's in a pup tent full of mosquitoes. He's, he's living with human beings, you know. It's like, ooh. I remember it made me, when I read this, it reminded me of a story one time about being rid of those who were selfish. It's like they were, they were parasitic, okay. They were perverse, and they were parasitic, okay. They only wanted Jesus for what Jesus would do for them. When I was very young, probably six, seven years old, I remember being with my dad, and we stopped at a truck stop, and uh, my dad was talking to this trucker, and this trucker told him this story. He says, yeah, he says, I was driving my uh, 18-wheeler, and he was down in uh, the south somewhere, and he said it had rained a lot in the south, and so on either side of the interstate and in the middle of the interstate, every ditch was full of water, and then they had the, all these little trees, you know, just small saplings that were coming up all over the place. He said, I was driving along and, and there was this, this truck or this car and it was, a, it was an old green Buick and it was, it was full of young kids. And uh, I, every time they'd slow down and then every time I'd go to pass them, then they'd floor it, you know, an old black smoke would roll and they'd, they'd all yuck it up because I couldn't get by them. 
So what I did, he said, was I laid back. And so he slowed his truck down, slowed his truck down. And he said, I let him get ahead of me a long ways. And then he said, I built up a head of steam. And he said, I was coming. And when I came at him, I was really cruising. And when I came up on him, and then they put the metal to the pedal, or pedal to the metal, and they were, the old black smoke was rolling out of that old green Buick. And they were, they were trying to, and I got, as soon as I got my tractor past that green Buick, I just pulled over and I let the trailer do the rest. He says, last time I looked in my rearview mirror, they were scooting across that water like they were on water skis, splitting all those little saplings. And he had had rid of them. He got rid of them. He got rid of them. And Jesus is perverted. And how long am I going to be with you? You know, we live in an unbelieving and perverted generation. One of the major proponents of liberation theology is on record as, as saying that He's not, he doesn't agree with what he calls and what is Savior theology. Savior theology is the belief and the teaching that spiritual liberation from our sin comes through personal faith in Jesus Christ and his death on the cross as the payment for our sin. No, he advocates for liberation theology, which states, according to him, that Christians are on this planet and exist only to bring about Liberation for the oppressed in a physical sense. This is the world we live in. Not, not Savior theology. Some other form of theology. Some other Jesus. Some other genie as a, a Jesus as a genie type person. And I wonder this morning. What do you think of Jesus? We live in a unbelieving and perverse generation. All people know about Jesus. But do you believe in Jesus? Do we see Jesus as a, as a genie, a Santa Claus, you know? We just put up our requests and he kind of gives us some good stuff when we want it. Do we treat him that way or do we deem him as the Messiah? Do we ask him to do what's, what's good for us or do we submit, turn from our sin and trust him as our Savior? That's who he is. He's the Savior. He's not just some genie. If we know Jesus, are we kind of like the disciples who, who recognize Jesus as Lord? Remember, not too long ago, Peter, speaking for the rest, says, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God, and back in chapter 16. Do we recognize him as Lord, but fail to rely upon him as Lord? Which I think was happening here uh, for the disciples. So Jesus, first of all, he, he manifests this, this challenge of unbelief through his disappointment over unbelief, and, and secondly, through his domination over darkness. Look at verse 18. And Jesus rebuked him, and the demon came out of him, and the boy was cured all at once, or from that hour, okay, from that hour. See, Jesus' patience was wearing very thin. But look at it won. It won out. This is the mercy of God. They didn't deserve it. Very, very, very thin, but boom, it won, it won, it won out. Jesus' patience won the day. He didn't immediately reject the, the persistent doubters. He, he didn't tell the Father to go home. He didn't yield to Satan's attempts to turn him away from his mission. No, he said, okay, bring him in. Bring him here. Bring him here. And he rebuked him. 
I was watching something on social media and some mother was uh, railing against the, the school administrators and saying, look, we don't work for you, you work for us. So we pay your salaries, you work for us, so you should do what we ask you to do. You see, the one who has superior authority is the one who rebukes the one who's inferior. Jesus rebukes the demon because Jesus is God. And only God has authority over the darkness. And Jesus demonstrates his divinity by telling this demon, go. And what could the demon do? Go, because Jesus is in charge. And the demon knows that he's in charge, and so he gets rebuked. The demon could do nothing but flee. And the source and the symptoms of the boy's disease were gone. Just like that. Jesus took care of it. Jesus rebuked the demon because Jesus is God and only God alone has control over the forces of darkness. The demon could do nothing except what God said. And as I was thinking about this, as I was reading about it, this third verse of a mighty fortress came actually on the page of what I was reading. So I'm going to have it up here for you to see. And though this world with devils filled should threaten to undo us, we will not fear, for God hath willed his truth to triumph through us. The prince of darkness grim, we tremble not for him. His rage we can endure, for lo, his doom is sure. One little word will fell him. God's word from God will fell him. That's it. According to Luke, the crowd was amazed at the greatness of God. That's what Luke says. Jesus cast out the demon, and the crowd was amazed at what? The power of this prophet. Well, he's a prophet, but he's more than a prophet. The power of God they were amazed at because God was working over them. So here, Christ's power over demons and over the disease testifies that he is sovereign, testifies of his majesty, testifies of his glory, testifies of his divinity. His ability to heal the disease and cast out the demon and ultimately to cure us of the disease of sin should be, and it serves as an invitation to everyone who's not trusting in Jesus as Messiah. You may know about him, you may understand who he is, but you're not fully surrendered to him. He's an invitation. Look, I am the real deal. Turn to me. And it's an inspiration for all of us to live by faith each and every day. He challenges our unbelief. And secondly, he champions mustard seed faith. Now, that's a change from your bulletin outline. Okay, I have authority to do that. <laughs> Sorry, I can change the, the outline. I changed it. It's better than living. Living faith is true. It is a living faith, but it's living slash mustard seed faith, okay? So, in uh, his cause of champion, it has Two faces. First of all, Jesus emphasizes the power of faith over adversity. In light of the commission that the disciples had been given in chapter 10, verse 8, to cast out demons, they were confused because they couldn't cast out the demon. 
<laughs> it's like, well, we're supposed to be able to do this, but why can't we do this? Why could we not cast it out? Verse 19. Uh, I think I have it. Yeah, I got this thing. Okay. I don't know if you can see this, but my dad has a trick. Okay. Little ring. Okay. Little chain. Okay. So you stick the chain through the ring. All right. Now, I'm going to drop the ring, right? And you're thinking, okay, well, that's fine. It's going to fall on the floor. Well, it probably is because I can't do the trick. But when my dad does the trick, when my dad does the trick, it loops around the chain. And it hangs there. And I go, what's the problem? The problem is with me. The disciples are going, what's the problem? Is it our technique? And Jesus goes, no, I'll tell you what the problem is. Now, I want you to read with me, if you will, in verse 20, because he gives them the, the answer to their problem. Because of the littleness of your faith. Little faith. So they had little faith. Uh, before, we have, they don't believe in Jesus fully as the Savior, but here they have this little faith. And little faith... And, and this little faith is evidenced by their lack of prayer. That's verse 21, okay? He says, because this one only comes out by prayer and fasting, and I know, okay, there's in brackets, and some of you, it might not even be in there, because that, that phrase was not found in the majority of manuscripts or in some of the, the later manuscripts, so you wonder about that. But if you went to the parallel passage in Mark chapter 9, you would see that Mark includes these words, by prayer. So they lacked, they had little faith, which was evidenced by their lack of prayer. And what is little faith? Little faith is a belief that God is impotent, that God doesn't have power to do the impossible. And little faith is also, sees that God is unimportant. It's, it's a self-focused. Little faith is self-focused. It's, it's highly likely that the disciples are just kind of like, well, you know, we can do this. And they were relying on themselves because we've been commissioned by Jesus to do this. Instead of looking to Jesus, they were looking to themselves. So self-reliance that doesn't pray is also... So there's impotence and of God and failing to see God as important. That I need to trust in Him, not me, to get this thing done. And, and here's the deal. Little faith is a failure to keep our focus fixed firmly on Jesus. It's not big faith. It's the focus of our faith. That's what little faith is. And Jesus gives us the key to unlocking the power of faith when he says in verse 20, he says, right after he says, because of the littleness of your faith, is for truly I say to you, conditional promise, if you, no, no, truly I say to you, because Jesus is truly God, he can say truly it's going to happen. He can make a promise that only God can fulfill because he's God. And he says, truly I say to you, if you have faith as a mustard seed, it'll happen. A promise that's rooted in the authority of God, a small amount of faith in the right object. That's the key. It's not faith in faith. A little faith, you know, it's not, not, not faith in faith. It's, it's not faith in our abilities. It's not faith in our circumstances. It's faith in Christ. My wife, bless her heart, when she was coming back from uh, Japan on a mission trip when she was in college, uh, she was in a bus station. Was it in 
L.A., more? Yeah. She was in the L.A. Greyhound bus station. And she had, you know, big, heavy bags, and she had this nice pottery thing that she'd gotten in Japan, and all her walking stick from uh, ascending Mount Kilimanjaro, and she had all these memorabilia stuff, but she had to go to the bathroom. So she looked around, and she found somebody that she didn't know from Adam, and she said to this lady, would you watch my stuff while I go to the bathroom in Los Angeles bus station?" little faith because the lady ended up being trustworthy and she got all her stuff when she was done faith that's in the right object Jesus is the object of our faith if it's a little faith the key to unlock God's power is mustard seed faith in Jesus that's expressed in prayer and the father, though he was an illustration of an unbelieving generation, is also an illustration of little faith. Because in verses 15 through 16, we see the father in the right perspective, humbly kneeling before Jesus. We see the father with the right object, teacher, Lord Jesus. We see the father with the right prayer, have mercy on me, I need you. You don't need me. And so there he is. And with him, Jesus said in Luke chapter 9, all things are possible to him who believes. Jesus said this to the Father. And the Father says, I do believe. Would you just help my unbelief? Little faith that resulted in a great result. That the, the boy was cured. Mustard seed faith keeps trusting God. It keeps trusting God when it doesn't rain. Keeps trusting God when there's inflation. Keeps trusting God when disaster strikes. Keeps trusting God when our health takes a turn for the worse. Keeps trusting God when one of our loved ones or our friends or our family members turns on us, turns against us. Little faith keeps, mustard seed faith keeps trusting when one of our loved ones passes away. Mustard seed faith keeps us going. And it's able to move mountains. He, Jesus said this, verse 20, I'm not saying this. Jesus says, if you have faith as a mustard seed, you'll move mountains. You'll say, mountain, move from here to there. And, and guess what? It'll do it. Not literal mountains, okay? He's not saying, okay, let's, let's go up to Mount Hood and say, okay, boom, move. Yeah, you can do that if you want. I don't think it's going to move. But he's going to move mountains proverbially, figuratively. Mountains that are things that are impossible. That we would deem impossible. Isn't that what Paul said in Ephesians chapter 3 verse 20? Now unto him who is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we would ever ask or think. Now you say, well that sounds, that sounds pretty good. See, a small amount of faith in our all-powerful Lord. That's the object of our faith. And our all-powerful Lord enables us to overcome great obstacles. It empowers us to endure great difficulties. And it energizes us to experience great victories. Now, it doesn't mean I'm going to get a Porsche 911 uh, because I have great faith. You know, that's not, that's, not, that's not what he's saying here. What he's saying here is that nothing that God wants for us or wants to do through us to advance his cause is impossible. 
doesn't mean everything I ask for I'm going to get. But it does mean that everything that God wants for me and everything that God wants for you as his child, everything that God wants to do in and through us for the advancement of his cause is, is possible before God. So what mountains do you want moved? I don't know, don't know whether God's going to move them, but what mountains do you want moved? Is there a child that's, that's gone astray or an obnoxious coworker, or a cantankerous neighbor or an unruly classmate that you want to come and see them come to know Jesus? Is it a besetting sin that you would like to see victory over? Is it finding a godly spouse or maybe a, a deeper, stronger marriage relationship? Maybe the mountain that you want to see God do, overcome. Maybe it's boldness in our, our witness for Christ. Or maybe it's physical healing. God is the man, God who moves mountains. God moved the mountains for this guy. And God wants, uh, he moves what he wants. God moves the mountain he wants with mustard seed faith. That's the point. Humble, Savior-reliant faith that goes to the Savior in prayer. Trusting that he will do it. If that's what he wants. George Mueller, some of you know about George Mueller. He built his ministry uh, to, on prayer. George Mueller had five guys that he was praying for that they would come to faith in Jesus Christ. So he began praying. And uh, the, the story goes that after five years, the first one of those people surrendered their life to Christ as Savior. After 10 years of praying, two more were moved to put their faith in Christ. After 25 years, the fourth man gave his life to Christ, and for the next 25 years, Mueller prayed until Mueller died. And so after 50 years of praying, one of the guys had not come to Christ when Mueller died, but within a few months of his passing, that person came to faith in Jesus Christ. Mustard seed faith, exhibited and expressed through prayer. Jesus drove home the importance of his delegated authority when he emphasized the place of faith in his atonement in verses 21, or 22 and 23. So here he does. He's got, he, he states three things that are going to be true that are prophetic, actually. It's, it's the second declaration of his passion. He's told them in chapter 16, I'm going to be suffer, I'm going to die, I'm going to rise again on the third day. Here he repeats it. And then the second one, there are three future facts that, that point to the place of faith in three circumstances. So what are the facts? Facts are, look at verse 22. He says, And while they were gathering together in Galilee, Jesus said to them, The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men. That's going to happen. Then they will kill him, which is according to God's plan. We can read in Isaiah and other places. And he'll rise again, which is according to God's plan, on the third day. That's Psalm chapter 16 and so on and so forth. Those are the three facts. Now, what are the three circumstances that those facts are to give us faith in? The first circumstance is faith in our separation. See, Jesus is preparing the disciples for his absence, but not just those guys back then, us too, because Jesus is not here with us, right? Physically, okay? He's here in our spirit, but he's not here physically. So he's preparing us for what's going to take place in his absence, all right? 
They'd witnessed the glory and the power of God in the flesh, and, he'd, and now he's talking about some human beings are going to kill him? Like, whoa, really? That kind of shakes my faith. Is Jesus really God or not? No, because what we see here is that Jesus willfully submitted himself to the Father's plan to give them faith. He's saying, look, this is all part of the plan. Just trust me in this. So we can trust him too because that is part of the plan. And we look back and see, yeah, he did rise from the dead. And it happened. It's part of God's plan. So it's giving us faith in our separation from Jesus. It's giving us faith in our suffering. We grieve the reality. I want to go back. We grieve the reality. They, they, they grieved because they didn't know the reality of the resurrection. We can glory in it. They didn't know the reality of it. So they were grieving. Oh, he's going to die. He's going to go. We, we, we glory in it because it happened. And it's a down payment that we will be raised from the dead. 1 Corinthians 15, verses 20 and 22. You can read it, if you will, later. It's part of the Father's plan. No, there's faith in our suffering. So living by faith, mustard seed faith even, doesn't exempt Jesus and it doesn't exempt us from suffering. Because remember I said that a mustard seed faith and, and God will give us the answers to whatever he has planned for us to advance his kingdom. It may be suffering. It was for Jesus. Why would that not be true for his followers? Not in every case, in every circumstance, all the time, all of life, but it, but it could be. And so we can have faith because it's part of God's plan. He knows it. And faith in our salvation. Jesus would be killed and raised on the third day. And in his death and his resurrection, he paid the debt. And pronounced pardon for all who would believe. Everyone. So he, he didn't just cast out a demon here. That was just a down payment. That's just kind of evidence that he can actually conquer sin and death and the devil and all of the evil forces when he rose from the dead. And he did that. So that we can have confidence to trust Him for our salvation. To turn from our self-directed way and turn and surrender our lives to Him so that He would guide and lead and, and be our Lord and Master. That's it. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 24 says, Christ died for sin once for all. No, I'm sorry. And He Himself bore our sins in His own body on the cross that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds we are healed. Healed of what? Our sinfulness. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21. He, that is God, made him, that is Jesus, who knew no sin, that's Jesus sinless, to be sin for us, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. When we turn from our sin and trust Jesus as our Savior, our sin gets put on Jesus and he dies, and his righteousness gets put on us and we live. And so my plea to you, if you're listening online or you're here this morning and you've never fully surrendered to Jesus, I just invite you. That's what Jesus is, is inviting you, to accept him as your Lord and Savior. And just say, Lord, I, yeah, I, I really, I kind of know who you are. I've kind of dabbled with it. I, I kind of tried to be a good person, but I realize that it's really not a matter of being good. I can't be good enough, but I am a person who lives my own life and now I'm accepting that you died in my place so that if I would trust your death as my death and the payment for my sins I would be a child of God and I want that right now now the words aren't important just 
in your own heart. You have to communicate to God. You know you're a sinner. Christ died for you and that you're trusting his death as, as a payment for your sins and now you're his child. Repent and believe. John Patton, missionary to the Hebrides, which is in South Pacific, he went there. They were cannibals, okay? Uh, and uh, they didn't have the Bible in their language, and so he was beginning to translate. And he translates the word believe in using a native phrase which goes like this, to lean with your whole weight upon. To lean with your whole weight upon. Like sitting in a chair. You're sitting in a chair, right? You're leaning with your whole weight upon the chair. Well, maybe not if you're pushing up with your feet. But if you lift your feet up off the ground, your, your whole weight is on the chair. So the, the, the living mustard seed faith does just that. It leans with our whole weight on Jesus. And so my invitation to you is, if you don't know Jesus, is to lean with your whole weight on Jesus who alone can conquer the forces of darkness and sin that, will head, that send you to an eternity apart from Him. For those who know Jesus, to lean with your full weight upon Jesus, with mustard seed faith each day. It's not great faith. It's humble faith in a great God. And if we believe, then let us pray with this Father, Lord, help my unbelief. Because it's our God who is faithful. Jesus is faithful. We're the faulty ones. He's the powerful one. We're the impotent people. He's able to do the impossible. And so my prayer is that we will see the magnificence of Jesus as one worthy of our trust for eternal salvation and in every life situation. And he demonstrated his power most fittingly when he went to the cross. And so as we take the elements, the bread and the cup, which are symbols of his death and his, his, his shedding of his blood, we are reminded of what he did for us. And so I invite you, in the, as, a, as the praise team plays this song, to, to search your heart and to confess your sin so that you're able to understand that they remind us to pause and confess and then to take in celebration of what Jesus has done for us. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for our Lord, your Son, our Savior. And I pray uh, that you'd help me, help each of us, if we don't know Jesus, to see Jesus as the one who not just casts out demons, but the one who is the Lord of all and able and control demons, but also able to deliver us from destruction and darkness. I pray that we would cry out to you in faith for our salvation. And I pray for those of us who know Jesus. Lord, help us. We believe. Help our unbelief. Give us mustard seed faith in every daily life situation to keep our eyes fixed on Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of God the Father, now interceding for us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.